It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. Joining me on the show today is Chris Orlob. Chris is founder and CEO of Conversature. Hey, I said it right. Chris, welcome to Accelerate. Well, thank you for having me on your show, Andy Paul. We meet again. We meet again, yes. So, uh, gosh, so proud of myself to pronounce that correctly. So, take a minute, introduce yourself. How did you get your start in sales? So, my parents, my, almost my entire life, have lived on a golf course. And they live at the very tail end of a fairway. And we have this fence. And every summer day, we'll get about three to five new golf balls hit into our yard. And the golfers can't get it because the fence is too high. Mm -hmm. So we get just this abundance of free golf balls. And at a pretty early age, I decided to collect all these golf balls and put them in a bucket and throw a sign on my fence that said, golf balls for sale, 25 cents each. So... That was like my first ever experience selling. Um, My dad was in sales and he kind of taught me, you know, some very basic stuff as I was doing that, you know, like an eight year old, he was teaching me how to upsell, you know, people would buy three golf balls for 75 cents and he would train me to say, do you want to make it five golf balls for a dollar? So after that, you know, I kind of, I always understood the importance of selling as more of a practice and an art than I did as a profession. Mm -hmm. And I sold my way through college. Um, I did did a few kind of odd sales jobs, like selling home security as an inside sales rep and selling coupon books door to door. But my first real professional sales experience was when I started at InsideSales.com, which I stayed there for around three years uh, when I was 21 years old. Doing being a sales development rep? Started as an SDR, worked my way up to regional sales executive, um, and then mid-market sales. And the last quote-unquote title I held there was regional sales manager. So what was the impetus for starting Conversature? This actually goes back. There's kind of a seed that was planted, I want to say, seven or eight years ago. Um, during the 2007-2008 recession, I was either a junior or a senior in high school. And my dad lost his job and he was unemployed for six months straight. And during the six month stretch, he sold coupon books door to door just to kind of give my family income. And he would do, do this during like these Utah blizzards. Most of this was during the winter time. And I came home from school one day and to find out my dad had slipped on a patch of ice and he tore his ACL in his knee. So he couldn't oh. sell these coupon books door to door anymore. So I was kind of like, well, what the hell are we going to do now? And he said, don't worry about it. I got a job as an inside sales rep. And I had never heard that term before. So he explained it to me. And I'm like, dad, that sounds a lot like telemarketing. He said, no, just, just bear with me. Uh, I'm going to make this work. So for the first few months, he was making dirt. It was a pure commission job. He was selling hardware. And he was probably taking in $2,000 per month for our family, again, for the first few months here. Selling digital hardware. Yes. Okay. So after 
the, the next year, so we started off making, you know, very little money. The next year, my dad showed me his W-2 and he had made $104,000. And, you know, in the Bay Area, that, that's not very much money. But in Utah during 2007, 2008 especially, that's nothing to sneeze at. That's a pretty good income. And years later, when I got my first job at InsideSales.com, I asked my dad how he went from essentially making nothing to making a six-figure income selling. He told me that every single day, almost without fail, he would review a call recording with his manager and they would you know, provide feedback. Mm-hmm. He would do self-review, his manager would provide feedback in his call recordings, and he honed his craft in that way. So fast forward to InsideSales.com. When I left just a little over a year ago, I saw that there was a market need that was unfilled, which was visibility into sales conversations. And having this passion for call recording review and sales coaching and salesmanship in general, uh, I took the leap August 8th of last year, 2015, and haven't looked back. Okay, so... Gosh, you guys have come a long ways with the product in that short period of time. Yep. So, so what does Conversature do? So the way you can think of Conversature is we call it conversation analytics software for sales teams. And the best way to think of it is to first understand the problem that it solves. I kind of alluded to this a minute or so ago, and here it is. Sales conversations are the black box of the sales process. Sales leaders typically have a ton of visibility and insight into almost every part of the sales process, except for the most pivotal moments, which is when an actual conversation takes place between a rep and a prospect. So when that happens, there's almost no visibility or insight, at least in a scalable way. So the way you can think of conversature is it's sort of like x-ray vision into a sales organization's conversations. And the way it works at a very high level is that it transcribes and filters and analyzes call recordings so sales leaders can understand them at scale as well as take the guesswork out of what actually works on sales calls, kind of take the guesswork out of sales effectiveness, at least to some extent. So analyzing it based on the transcription so you can do searches and run your algorithms against that. Exactly. It's called, the technical term is uh, a specific method of machine learning called active learning. Okay. So who's the target market for the products? Target market is any organization that sells professionally over the phone in at least a decent volume. So that would include, I would imagine, a lot of people listening to this, you know, B2B, quote unquote, inside sales organizations that could include, that could include both sales development as well as specialized account executives. Mm-hmm. We actually, we primarily sell to B2B companies, but we do have a small handful of B2C company as well who tend to have very coaching-driven cultures within their sales organizations. Okay. So how would someone sort of say, okay, you know, this is, this is something we really need to have as part of our, our mix, our coaching mix, and so on? So... The beauty of what we're doing is we're pioneering a new market. And what that usually entails is one of two things. Either people don't know they have a problem, it hasn't really been surfaced to them, or they don't know a problem can be solved. In other words, it's not really the, they don't view it as a problem as more, they just view it as the cost of doing business. So, 
if you lack visibility, it, here are some symptoms that maybe tell you you should be looking into something like conversature. If your sales reps are having low-quality conversations, that's the first given. If you don't know the quality of your sales reps' conversations, that's a second sign because you lack the visibility. And if you've tried very hard to improve the quality and effectiveness of your sales reps' conversations, but to unpredictable ends, that's probably the third biggest signal. Okay. Yeah, I'd probably stack rank them a little bit differently. But yeah, that sounds like... Because, uh, I mean, it, you're absolutely right. It's sort of the black, the black box, whether it's certainly for inside and outside. It's even worse on outside sales, right? Because typically they're out there by themselves. Their calls aren't... Uh, you don't have the ability to record calls. And, well, there are technologies coming out that allow you to do it. But fundamentally, you don't have the ability to, to read call, record calls. And this is where this is where the rubber meets the road. Yeah, you know, when sales ultimately boils down to a person talking to a person, wouldn't it be great to have insight into that? Mm-hmm. And because we don't really have insight right now, uh, you know, those black boxes that are kind of scattered throughout the sales process, depending on how long your sales process is, they kind of act as like these unpredictable vortexes. So you have visibility up until the point that somebody has a conversation. You know, you saw how many dials your reps made yesterday and how many emails they sent and all that good stuff. But as soon as that lead that was generated drops into an actual phone call with a rep, you have no idea what's happening or what's going to happen, and you're simply crossing your fingers, hoping that lead comes out the other side of that conversation in a way that moves the sale forward. Yeah, no, absolutely. You're just you're just guessing, just taking a guess. You're hoping, keeping your fingers crossed, basically. Yep. Yeah, which is is uh, you know when you think about all the emphasis we're putting on coaching and skill development in sales. I mean, people listen to this show. We've had lots of people on talking about skill development, enhancement, and so on. Is It's all sort of geared based on what assumptions about what's what their weaknesses are, assumptions about what they're doing right or wrong when they're actually talking to the client as opposed to actually knowing. Yeah, and one kind of byproduct we've noticed about having visibility into sales calls and we learned this after launching Conversature to our first few beta customers, is that visibility into conversations acts as an auto-correcting mechanism. So you can teach reps sales behaviors, you can coach them, you can tell them what to do and what not to do. But most of the time, when they get back on a call with a prospect, they revert back to their old kind of mediocre habits. And the way to really get new habits and behaviors to stick, I don't want to say the way, but one of the good ways is to get visibility into their conversations. It's very similar to like a, you know, an eight-year-old playing soccer. If the coach or the dad is not watching the kid play soccer, uh, he or she is just kind of running around do, doing whatever they want. But when the coach is watching the practice or the game and monitoring it, you know, somewhat closely without being a micromanager, now that you know, young athlete is performing at his or her best, the same psychological principle applies to sales. When reps know their calls are made transparent, they employ the right behaviors a lot more often, and they refrain from destructive behaviors a lot more often. Yeah, well, it's like... <laughs> Yeah, it's it's funny that I'm just laughing that it's taken us so long to get to this point in sales where that seems like a revelation because certainly in the rest of the sales process, accountability and transparency, you know, leads to 
changes in behavior or changes in employment, one of the two. Mm-hmm. And yeah, now they can finally have transparency throughout the entire process. That you know, maybe the transparency, I'm sure, is intimidating to many sales reps, but it's how they become better. Mm-hmm. To your dad's point, right? How do you become better? He listens to the call, reviewed one call every day. Yeah, I think accountability in general uh, can be intimidating. And I think it's amplified with sales calls because, again, it's the most pivotal moment in the sales process. You know, if you, it, it's the most hard part. I don't even want to say it's the most hard part. It's just the part of the sales process that tends to require the most skill. Like if you're required to make 80 dials per day as an SDR, if you're required to move your opportunities through the pipeline as an account executive, all of that can be done almost mechanically. But conversations are the part of being a professional salesperson that require the most preparation and skill and coaching and training and education and all of that fun stuff. Was it really skills? As opposed to what? Uh, experience, intuition. Um, I mean, you've written about this. I mean, you you talk about upskilling your sales team and so on. I mean, do you? I mean, do you really? Can you really hire in the skills you need, or do you hire in the experience you need? I think that's a tough uh, call. Um, if we're talking about hiring specifically, I, I think there's going to be a lot of variables there. So an example would be, do we have a highly experienced salesperson who doesn't really have the fire in his or her belly anymore? Or do we hire somebody who graduated college or maybe didn't even graduate college, has a level of social intelligence and mo- emotional intelligence, is very, very driven, but doesn't really have a decade or even a few years of sales experience, my gut would say go with you know the younger guy or gal who really has the fire in their belly. Now, if you get the older guy or gal who also has experience and fire in their belly, then I think you know experience obviously outweighs a lack of experience. I think there are a lot of, to your point, variables at play here. It's not just skill, it's experience. It's a lot of intangibles. Yeah, because I mean, you talk a lot about sales training and your blog um, being used to increase skills. I mean, the question is, does training really even work in that regard? I mean, can you really upskill your your sales team or do you have to hire in people that have the skills? I think, I think we can categorize sales professionals in three very, very broad categories. Uh, there are high performers, there are average performers, and there are low performers. I think spending a lot of one mistake people make when it comes to coaching and training is spending too much time both on high performers and low performers. Um, you know, if you're coaching all day, on your high performers, it's kind of like trying to take one golf swing off of an 18-hole game. Very incremental as far as improvements go. Yeah, well, the return on the marginal investments, it's yeah, low. Very, right? very marginal. But if you're coaching your low performers, I, I think I read this in the Challenger sale like years ago. I think he says something like, you can't coach away a bad fit for a job. So the real leverage when it comes to coaching, at least in the way we're talking about it, is being able to move your average or maybe above average performers, the people who have that kind of innate social skill and social intelligence, and moving them up because they have a lot more room for improvement than like a top performer does. And they actually have the possibility of improvement 
that the low performer does not have. So what's the key to that then in your mind? Because I, I, again, I'm not being you know too much of a devil's advocate, but I mean, it's it's not clear to me that sales training really does that. I, I think I think, I think I think success experience is what teaches people. Yeah, and to be clear, I don't think sales training you know by itself is going to fix that. I think sales training again is one of many variables. I think it comes down to sales training. I think it comes down to educating oneself and having these experiences. Because the the thing about experience that I think I kind of had an epiphany that I think a lot of older people probably already know is that sales success often comes down to judgment. Um, There's no formula for sales success. If there were, judgment wouldn't be required. Oh my gosh, we're going to get rid of all those sales books people wrote. (laughs) That's not to say that there's no successful methodology. There's just no step-by-step formula that's going to work every single time in every single situation. As I said, we'll have to get rid of most of those sales books that people write. Right, throw them in the fire. I mean, I I don't disagree. I mean, I I, <laughs> I think that it's it's very individualized. Yeah. And that no two people really operate the same nor do nor are two customers ever the same. So the whole idea that we've got these set processes, taking aside just you know very transactional one call close type deals, you know, anything a complex enterprise sale, no two ever unfold exactly alike. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the question is, who are the people that are best? You know, what do you do to get your people prepared to be able to handle those variabilities? Well, I think there are a few different kind of coaching secrets, and I'm going to hone in on coaching, kind of acknowledging the fact that there are other ways to do this and other requirements beyond sales training and coaching. But that said, there are a few leverage points. One is that you should, as a sales manager or a sales leader or sales coach, you should be focusing on an individual's opportunities for developing their strengths rather than correcting their weaknesses. I'm not saying don't work on the weaknesses at all. All I'm saying is that if you're focused primarily on correcting weaknesses, what you're trying to do is go from below average to average. Whereas if you're trying to turn a strength into a stronger strength, you're going from above average or good to great. And that's where the opportunities lie. If somebody has a weakness that's you know so detrimental that it's losing a bunch of sales, again, correct that. But the leverage in coaching comes from exploiting strengths rather than correcting weaknesses. So you've come to this from, is there you know, research that buttresses that or is this your experience, what you've seen? This is a little bit of experience as well as education. So the concept of exploiting strengths rather than focusing on weaknesses actually comes from Peter Drucker. Mm-hmm. I think he called I think he talks about it in his book The Effective Executive. I've read a few Peter Drucker books and they're all really really good. I think that's the book that that concept lies within. Mm-hmm. So I kind of treated that as a hypothesis when it came to skill development early on in my sales career. And it's something I've noticed. So, you know, to, I don't want to discredit any of this, but it is fairly anecdotal. It's based off my own experience and observation and experiences some of my colleagues have had, but I wouldn't say there's any like, you know, hard data or research to back this theory up quite yet. Yeah, no, I was just trying to think about this in the context of, of what I've seen with people is, is, 
Yeah, I'm going to have to sort of think about that. We'll need more time outside this podcast to, to think about whether, yeah. I, whether I agreed with that. I mean, I think that, that you know, when you're coaching, I think it's really important to focus on one thing. Mm-hmm. Now, whether it's a strength or a weakness, you know, we could set that aside for a second. But I, I think that if you try to coach across two, I think, I know, that if you try to coach across too broad of a front, then you're going to really diminish the effectiveness of the coaching. So what you really want is you try to set somebody up to master something. Yes. Right? I mean, when I'm coaching somebody, I want them to become really good at one thing first before I start really working on the second thing. If I can get them really good on one thing, one habit to become proficient at, and I wouldn't I only call it a skill, I'll call it a habit, one habit they become really proficient at, then if they can do that, then I know that, A, there's hope to teach them on a second one, which is really important, and that, you know, there's hope for them in general to be successful over the long run if they can accept that coaching, as I said, achieve that mastery. I completely agree. I think you should be focusing your coaching and training efforts, at least at an individual level, on one at most two behaviors. And I think the key word that you just said there is habit. Because if we're focusing on five, six, seven behaviors, what we've accomplished is we've informed the rep or the reps, but we haven't changed their behaviors. Whereas if we do focus on this one behavior, we want to get it right over a period of 30 days and we want to continue to reinforce that, ensure that person's implementing what they taught or what they were taught, then it becomes the habit. We can move on to the next thing. And it's kind of counterintuitive because it seems like the fast way to progress is teaching people five, six, seven things at once. But the downside there is none of that turns into habits. Yeah, well, habits are measurable. Skills aren't. Right? I mean, that's the thing with sales training. It's sort of ironic. We talk about you know, coming in and teaching skills, but then the reps are all measured on, on certain metrics that they have, which are really based on activities which are really habits at the at baseline. Mm-hmm. So I wrote, when I'm coaching, I want to focus somebody on their behaviors more than skills. Because I'm going to have a certain assumption that unless there's something really egregious, right, that they do some sort of basic training on boarding, they have sort of a certain, certain level of skill, but it's going to be the behaviors that drive them, put them in a position to use those skills in an effective way. Yeah, I think, I think you used the best word of this entire conversation, which is behaviors. Um, I used the word skill probably loosely. And I think you more accurately defined what we're talking about as behaviors and habits. Well, I think it's important to clarify it for people that are listening is that there's a difference. And I said the two are conflated oftentimes. And it's, it's really important to keep them, keep them apart. A, if you're a coach and you're talking about how you work with your people, but B, also if you're a rep and you're saying, okay, what do I need to do to improve? Well, the object, or not the object, but a lot of times the, the goal they set is, do I want to get better at something which is more skill-based as opposed to saying, you know, if I really focused on being coming incredibly responsive, let's say, to every time I have a chance to be responsive to a prospect or a customer, wow, that has, if I can master that, the ripple effects are going to be incredible. Yeah, and that was, that was one of my favorite concepts from your book, um, and the way that it kind of was burned into my brain as far as responsiveness goes, not to go down a totally different rabbit hole. But every time you lack responsiveness and you take longer than you should to satisfy a customer's need for information or question, it acts as compounding debt 
during the sales cycle. Yeah, I like the so, way you, you talked about that in your, your blog post. Yeah, and I was inspired by reading your book. So, you know, if, if you lack responsiveness, the customer may be expecting to get a deal done or get this off of their plate within 60 days. But if you were, you know, lacking the responsiveness, you'd drag that process out to 70 days or 80 days or in worst case scenario, 90 days. And like you talk about in your book, your competitor, your responsive competitor could have shortened the process to 50 days. And that's why they have the deal. Mm -hmm. Well, even if the order came at 90 days, the fact is they've, they've already won the sale in the mind of the customer customer. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that's you want to be on that point. Right when you're selling, anybody that's listening to the show is your job is how can I get that customer bought into me completely, make that emotional decision that they want to do business with me before they make the physical, you know, actual decision, put the sign the dot on the dotted line. And there's right. there's a gap, there's a time gap. Depending if you're selling a more complex enterprise sale, you know, that could be weeks or months. But in that period of time, your competitors are sitting there investing all these resources into an opportunity that they have no chance of winning. Right, yeah. Great place to be. I love it. I love seeing my competitors waste all their time <laughs> trying to sell into an account that I know that, that is going with me. Because then they're not, we but, yeah. Well, then they're, not, then they're not out spending time on other opportunities we have yeah, that we'd run into them. It's a very high opportunity cost at that point. Yeah. And the thing is, they don't even know it, which is perfect. All right, so something else you talked about was in one of your blog posts that I thought was sort of interesting. It's sort of aligned with talking about coaching and managers and so on. And this, this one sort of struck a, a chord with me, uh, perhaps not in the way you would like, but is said that, that strong sales managers or strong sales leaders should not distribute leads equitably. That the good reps should get the good lead. So why do you think that? Because this... I want to make a caveat. This more applies to startups, I think, than it applies to more mature organizations. And the thinking behind this is if you have a lot of high-quality leads coming in and they're being distributed equitably, and some of them are giving been given to high performers or medium performers or low performers, those leads that are given to low performers are closing at a much lower rate. And they could have, you know, these leads have very high potential. If they were given to a high performer, the closing ratio skyrockets because it's a combination of a high quality lead with a highly effective salesperson. If you combine a high quality lead with a salesperson of low effectiveness, a lot of those expensive leads are going to be um, wasted. So there's a guy named Brendan Cassidy or Brandon, I think it's Brendan Cassidy who's kind of famous in the SaaS world for being a very effective startup VP of sales. He worked uh, under the guy who runs Saster over mm -hmm. at EchoSign. Mm -hmm. And that was, in one blog post I read from him like years ago, he said whenever he comes into a new sales organization as VP of sales, that's the first process change he makes. Is number one, he'll actually get rid of low performers, but number two, he will distribute high-value leads to salespeople that he knows are going to deliver on closing those leads. All right. So you, with the caveat about being in a startup situation, because yeah, my first comment to that is yeah, if you if you have reps that you can't trust to do a good job in converting leads, then you just need to get rid of them. So the problem seems like it should it should solve itself. You said he comes in and, and does that. Um, 
but I've worked with clients in situations where we've had similar situations. Just have people that if you don't trust to give them the leads, you have sort of to your point you're making before you got sort of you know upper class, middle class, lower class in terms of performance is you know you can't ever nurture your your average performers and give them a taste of what success looks like if they don't have the opportunity to perform on some of those. So yeah, you have to. If you'd have people you just absolutely don't trust, then if you're a sales leader, those people have to go. That's sort of the baseline for me is, is you know, you should never be in that situation where you have people that you can't trust to give leads to. And if you do, then you need to make a, an adjustment with their situation. And I think one of the reasons that this particularly applies to startups more so than big organizations is a lead for a startup, even if it's a mature startup, is gold. And we need to ensure that that's going to be closed because cash is king. Whereas in a big organization, you know, leads are still gold. They should be treated like gold, but they're not life and death uh, as closely as they are in the startup world. And I think if you skew the distribution of leads too much toward your top performers in a big organization, it's probably going to have some negative cultural implications. Whereas in a startup, you're probably too small for the cultural implications to really um, affect you very negatively unless you know you just totally do this wrong and you only give all of your leads to your top performer. Of course, you're going to have a, a toxic sales organization after a couple months there. But the point behind that article is, especially for startups, leads that have a high propensity of closing, we need to make sure those leads are going to be closed by people that can deliver. Yeah, and I think the thing that you have to I would put out there, and the last comment on this is, is just as a, a point of balance, because I worked with a CEO at a startup who he was prepared to sacrifice those leads in order to help people learn. Right? I mean, he was prepared to, because he thought, look, we're doing a great job of bringing people into this company that, it, mistakes aside, right? But in general, most of the time, we're doing a great job of bringing people into this company that really belong. We've spent, invest a lot of time to bring them in. And yeah, he was, he was really interesting. He was prepared to say, okay, yeah, we may, we may lose it on that one, but just think of what we'll have learned from doing that. And as an organization, what that person will have learned as an organization will be that much smarter. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it's, you don't see that sort of long-term vision often in CEOs of startups because oftentimes they're just focused on about as far as an, an exit point. And not beyond that. Yeah, and I think that mindset will vary depending on where you are as a startup. We all use the term startup fairly loosely, you know, in today's world. And that could mean anybody from one person in their garage who has an idea and no product. And it could mean, you know, even like $50 million a year companies still almost laughably call themselves startups. Um, I think if you have the resources to to have those learning opportunities, then I would agree with that guy. But I would also say, if you're a bootstrapping entrepreneur and you can only afford to hire, you know, maybe one sales rep who's on your sales force, just at a gut level, now it becomes a little bit harder to use those leads as learning opportunities. So I guess the point I'm making depends on which phase of the startup life you are, at least from my perspective. Yeah. Yeah, in this case, this this was about a $5 million a year company at that point. Um, leads were pretty precious, but yeah, now it's the uh, same guy running the company. It's you know $2 billion a year company. So 
uh, built a culture. So now we move to the last segment of the show where I've got some hypothetical scenario or questions. Or not hypothetical. i got questions I ask. I hope my guess. The first one being a hypothetical scenario. I'm confused today. I'm sorry. It's too hot out here. <laughs> so um, in this first question, there's a hypothetical scenario. You've just been hired, you, Chris, as VP of sales at a company whose sales have stalled out. CEO is anxious to get things unstuck back on track. And I know turnaround doesn't happen in a day, but your first two, first week on the job, what are two things you could do that would have the biggest impact? The first two things I would do are first bring on one or two high performers. I think any good sales leader should kind of have uh, a Rolodex of high performing sales people in his or her back pocket that they can take with them. People, so that's the people ready to follow you, right? Exactly. That's the first thing I would do. And the second thing I would do is analyze and correct the lead management processes. So if we're responding very slowly to inbound leads, Mm -hmm. uh, we want to make sure we get to those within five minutes. If we're not following up enough on our leads, if we're only calling once or twice and emailing once or twice and then archiving that lead, uh, I would ensure that we're wringing out the value of those leads to a greater extent. And then I would ensure that the leads are being routed appropriately. So to summarize the first two actions, bring in a couple of top performers and correct the lead management processes. Okay, excellent. Good responses. All right, so now we have some rapid-fire questions. You can give me one-word answers or elaborate if you wish. The first one is, when you, Chris, are out selling Conversature services, what's your most powerful sales attribute? I think the ability to deliver insights. Okay. That make people think differently. Good. Like it. Who's your sales role model? <laughs> so the the guy who immediately sprang in my into my mind, which I'm not even sure why he did, is Mark Cuban. Yeah. And I think it's because I treat sales as more of a practice more than I do as a profession. And what I mean by that is I'm an entrepreneur as a quote-unquote profession, but I practice salesmanship. And he does the very same thing. He's been a career entrepreneur. Of course, now he's an investor. And he always kind of touts the importance of sales ability, and that's Mm -hmm. always related with me. Okay, excellent. So what's one book that every salesperson should read? Amp Up Your Sales, of course. And who's the author of that book? Andy Paul, our man, Andy Paul. And I I don't say that as a way to, you know, Brian or Brown knows the (laughs) interviewer here. Uh, You can go back and listen to my own podcast, Interviews with Inside Sales Gurus. One of the first things I say is I've read a lot of sales books and you begin to kind of become a little bit jaded after a while of reading a lot of them because you hear the very similar things. Amp Up Your Sales was very different. Uh, Fresh insights, whether you're a veteran or a newbie to sales. Um, aside from that, I'm a huge fan of Challenger Sale. Okay. All right. Good recommendations, both of them. And thank you very much. So, um, last question. What's, what music's on your playlist these days? <laughs> so, w- one thing that people are always pretty surprised to know about me, uh, if they haven't known me for a while, is my first real career ambition was to be a metalcore drummer. 
<laughs> so I ended up developing tendonitis and both knees and both elbows because I used to practice too much. And metalcore is like, you know, like hardcore metal. Yeah. But the stuff I listen to nowadays is Blink-182. Uh, A Day to Remember is probably my favorite band. My wife just got me Blink-182 tickets for Father's Day. I was going to say, they're, they're coming back on tour. Yeah, so they're coming to Utah. I think it's September 21st. I uh, got my tickets in hand. Super excited. Excellent. Yeah. Blink-182. I mean, I, you probably grew up with Blink-182. Not to, yeah, put, not to, put, you, not to put you in a category. but I, I'm one of the young guys. Yep. Yeah. Blink-182. I'm still a punk at heart, honestly. I still play the drums. I take my son over to my parents' house when I get the opportunity. And he's only two years old, so he doesn't know what the hell he's doing. But he likes to smash around on the cymbals and make really loud noises. So your parents so, still have your drum set? Yeah, I just keep it over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let me keep it over there. Yeah, just wait till they call your mom. I two year old using it every day. I'll yeah, put I was going to say, just wait till your mom calls and says, you know, Chris, we don't have room for this anymore. Do you want to take it over to your house? All right. Well, good. Well, Chris, thanks for uh, joining me on the show. Tell people how they can find out some more about Conversature. So if what I said earlier at the beginning of this interview, uh, when Andy asked me about Conversature, if any of that resonated, go to conversature.com. That's C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-U-R-E dot com. One more time, that's C-O-N-V as in victory, E-R-S-A-T-U-R-E dot com. You can request a demo. You can't miss the big orange button in the middle of the homepage. And if I have time, I'll be the one to personally walk you through the demo. Excellent. All right. Well, that's a good offer. So, well, Chris, thanks for being on the show. And remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And one easy way to do that is to make this podcast accelerate a part of your daily routine, whether you listen on your commute, in the gym, or make it part of your morning sales meeting. That way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Chris Orlop, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your sales. So thanks for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guests, visit my website at andypaul.com.